There is a widely held perception that the civil wars of the mid-17th century were all about England. They're often seen as conflicts fought on English soil between the English supporters of King Charles I and the English Parliament. However, this view ignores or underplays the fact that Charles Stuart was not simply monarch of England, but also of Scotland and Ireland, having inherited his crown from his father, James I of England and VI of Scotland. In this, the first of two talks, Laura Stuart, Professor of History at the University of York, emphasises that opposition to the King first broke out not in England in 1642, but three years earlier in Scotland, where Charles had mistakenly decided to use English resources to crush the Scots. The results were disastrous for the King and his subjects, and would directly contribute to the outbreak of civil war. In the first of my two talks, I will be focusing on how a popular protest in Scotland at the end of the 1630s escalated into a crisis that by 1642 had engulfed Charles's other kingdoms. By that time, Charles's Scottish opponents had settled with their king and had taken control of his government. They had successfully avoided both destruction by the king's armies, twice, and the threat of civil war in their own kingdom. As a result, the Scots effected a constitutional, political and religious revolution in which many of the powers vested in the crown were transferred to the Scottish Parliament. In the autumn of 1641, Charles I travelled for the second time since his boyhood to Scotland. His opponents forced the king to make key concessions that undermine the prerogative powers he believed belonged to him by divine right. Parliament would be able to call itself every three years without the king's consent. Parliament would approve the king's privy councillors, who had formerly been his alone to appoint. And the power to determine how the church should be governed was moved away from the king and his bishops back to a body called the General Assembly. We need to acknowledge, too, that Charles was willing to concede so much to the Covenanters because he was suddenly required to turn his attention to a far more serious emergency, the outbreak of a Catholic-led rebellion in Ireland. Our main theme today is how historians have understood the role of the Scottish Covenanters in bringing about civil war in England in 1642. At the same time, it is important to remember that events in Scotland and in Ireland have their own significance, beyond providing another explanatory framework for the outbreak of war in England. Why is the Union of 1603 so important for contextualising the outbreak of the English Civil War? If we're going to understand the role of the Scots in bringing about the breakdown of Charles's government in England by 1642, we need to know a little more about the kind of union affected by James VI's accession to the English throne. Commonly termed the Union of the Crowns, this is in fact a misnomer. The Crowns were not actually united until 1707, and even then, Scotland kept its own crown jewels, which were presented in 2023 to King Charles I's descendant and namesake, King Charles III. The historian Conrad Russell states that the 1603 Union created something called a multiple kingdom, in which separate polities were brought together either through inheritance or, more rarely, through election. Although a relatively easy and commonplace way for rulers to acquire more land, people and resources, contemporaries nonetheless recognised that these new creations were inherently unstable. Scotland and England after 1603 exemplified some of the key challenges for the rulers of multiple kingdoms. Although King James had actively promoted closer union in the early years of his English reign, his project had founded by 1607, primarily through the hostility of English parliamentarians. The two kingdoms continued to be governed largely as they had been before 1603, 
retaining almost entirely separate legal systems, governing structures, churches, and parliaments. This outcome suited almost everyone at the time. However, their ruler's permanent removal to a rival kingdom soon became a problem for the Scots. It was perhaps inevitable that James, and especially Charles, would give more attention to the economic, political, religious and diplomatic concerns of the largest and richest of their realms. Alan McInnes has provided the most wide-ranging account to date of the way in which policies pursued by the British kings with both their own dynastic interests and the interests of their English subjects uppermost in mind made the Scots feel marginalised and disadvantaged. Parliament's vital role as a deliberative body and council giver to the king was attenuated by royal managers tasked securing ever larger taxes in return for minimal concessions. The outbreak of the Thirty Years' Wars, 1618 to 1648, in which the British kingdoms were directly implicated through the marriage of James's daughter, Elizabeth, to one of the key protagonists, the elector of the German Palatine, Frederick V, put further strain on the Union. That James died peacefully in his own bed in 1625, with his expanded dominions intact and an adult male heir waiting in the wings, may well have been as much to do with good fortune as undoubted political acumen. Charles would prove neither as lucky nor as savvy as his father. Why did Charles's policies generate resistance in Scotland? The crisis that occurred in Scotland in the late 1630s, and which triggered the events that would lead to the outbreak of war in England, was fundamentally about religion. Although it was clearly not the only factor, religion provided the means of galvanising people from across the social spectrum and with otherwise different priorities into concerted action. Religious grievances were not exclusively and wholly of Charles's making. They were rooted in the peculiar nature of Scotland's Protestant Reformation, which had proceeded not from the impetus of the ruler, as in England, but as a rebellion against James's grandmother, Mary of Guise, and later her daughter, Mary Queen of Scots. These events resulted in a church that contemporaries saw as being more thoroughly reformed than England's, especially in the way it was governed. Whereas the English monarch was officially head of the church, James VI claims to be supreme governor in matters spiritual and ecclesiastical were angrily contested in a church that many of its members believed should not be subject to temporal authority. The office of bishop, through which English monarchs governed the church, was the subject of intense controversy in Scotland. In the decades after the 1560 Reformation, the church created a national hierarchy of courts to manage local and regional affairs and legislated for itself in a body called the General Assembly. This system of church government is called Presbyterian, and the people who argued most vigorously in its favour are known as Presbyterians. James VI did not see these developments as advantageous and spent most of his adult life battling to restore royal control over ecclesiastical affairs. By the late 1610s, James had fully restored the office of bishop and dispensed with the General Assembly. Crucially for the events of the late 1630s, however, the Presbyterian courts were not dismantled. This brings us back to the Regal Union. Policies that a resident King of Scots could persuade most people were inspired by the natural care of a godly prince for good order in his church, looked after 1603, to be about making the Scottish church, also called the Kirk, more like its half-reformed English counterpart. Why would a pious ruler do such a thing? The Scottish minister, David Calderwood, thought he had the answer. Conformity with the English church was but a staging post to full conformity with the Roman Kirk. What some historians call anti-popery, a cultural rather than strictly doctrinal hostility to Roman Catholics and their religion, 
cannot be underestimated as a factor in the breakdown of Charles's government across all three kingdoms. Fears that the Protestant Reformation was under threat, both from Romanizing influences around the king's French Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria, and from the Catholic armies on the march in Europe after 1618, were legitimized through sermons and cheap print. It was the shared facet of English and Scottish Puritan culture that enables us to better understand why the policies of a Protestant king generated such violent hostility in some of his Protestant subjects that they were ultimately prepared to fight both him and one another. Although Presbyterians were well organised, with international networks and wide support across Scottish society, their influence with politicians and courtiers waned as the epicentre of politics moved from Edinburgh to London. Charles I's 1633 coronation parliament, when the king journeyed to Scotland for the first time since his departure as a boy in the early 1600s, seemed to confirm their worst fears. A sweeping statement of the king's sovereign authority, princely power, royal prerogative and privilege of his crown over all estates, persons and causes whatsoever, reaffirmed powers the Presbyterians believed no secular ruler should exercise. Voting in Parliament was carefully and conspicuously monitored by the king to intimidate dissenters. It was a display of authoritarianism that mirrored Charles's attitude towards his English Parliament, which had been dissolved by the king in highly contentious circumstances in 1629. Worst of all, an attempt to supplicate the king in person for remedy of long-standing religious grievances resulted in the arrest, trial and conviction of a peer of the realm, John Elphinstone, Lord Balmerino. His lawyers pointed out in his defence that, as a nobleman, he could not be guilty of sedition when he was acting to fulfil his essential duty of representing the grievances of the people to their king. Balmerino was sentenced to death, allegedly on the casting vote of Scotland's most influential statesman, the Lord Treasurer John Stuart, 1st Earl of Traquair, but he was later pardoned. It was said that great crowds came out to cheer Balmerino as he travelled through the streets of Edinburgh to his trial. Charles could have rested content with what he and his father had achieved over the past half century, but this would have required Charles to be a different man. Working with William Laud, recently elevated to the premier position in the English Church as Archbishop of Canterbury, Charles embarked on a new project to introduce a set liturgy, or prayer book, into the Scottish Church. Although prayer books were by no means unknown in Scotland, the Kirk had long advocated for extempore preaching as the most efficacious route to spiritual edification. The kind of sermons in which increasingly well-trained ministers improvised on biblical passages became a cherished aspect of the Scottish religious experience beyond Presbyterian circles. The preface to the 1637 prayer book argued, by contrast, that Scotland's first reformers had always envisaged a set order of service. Our first reformers were of the same mind with us, as appeareth by the ordinance they made, that in all the parishes of this realm the common prayer should be read weekly on Sundays and other festival days, with the lessons of the Old and New Testament, conformed to the order of the Book of Common Prayer, meaning that of England, for it is known that diverse years after we had no other order for common prayer. This is recorded to have been the first head concluded in a frequent council of the lords and barons professing Christ Jesus. We keep the words of the history of the Church of Scotland. Religion was not then placed in rites and gestures, nor men taken with a fancy of extempore prayers. Sure, the public worship of God in his church, being the most solemn action of his poor creatures here below, 
ought to be performed by a liturgy advisedly set and framed, and not according to the sudden and various fancies of men. This interpretation of the Scottish Reformation was not entirely wrong, but it offended many people who had grown up in a different tradition. What made the situation even more volatile was the ill-considered way in which the book was drafted and presented in Scotland. The project was put into the hands of a small number of conformist Scottish bishops and ministers, who made few attempts at wider consultation. Since hardly anyone got to see what was going into the book over the many months it was being drafted, Presbyterians were easily able to put the worst construction upon it. Charles imposed it by the royal prerogative, through his Privy Council, to make the point that kings possessed the power to order the church without consulting Parliament or General Assembly. This further alarmed politically active people dismayed by the events of 1633 and the perceived provincialisation of their ancient kingdom. The first public reading of the new liturgy took place in St Giles Church in the capital, Edinburgh, on Sunday the 23rd of July, 1637. A contemporary journal, almost certainly written by an Edinburgh resident, gives a vivid account of what happened when the Bishop of Edinburgh stood up in the pulpit of St Giles to read from the prayer book. All the people in the said kirk began to murmur, and especially the women of all sorts that were present. And thereafter the said women began to greet and shed tears, and cry aloud they were going to read and say mass, uttered forth such angry and bitter speeches, calling them traitors, belly gods, deceivers, and all got up on their feet crying and shouting, casting stools at them, and was likely to have slain them or riven them in pieces if they could have and many men and women going forth of the kirks, so that the said bishop and ministers in all the said three kirks of Edinburgh were compelled to leave off their reading of the service books with the danger of their lives. The so-called prayer book riots are amongst the most famous episodes in Scottish history, because later generations found in them a way to tell stories about the past that seemed relevant to the present. Serving women shouted and threw objects at privileged men. Ordinary men and women took action against the powerful to defend their right to worship according to their own consciences. The peoples of a realm, even those who loved it, called this backside of the earth, stood up to the overweening kingdom next door. Contemporaries articulated what had happened in July 1637 as an act in defence of Scotland's religion, laws and liberties. It was dangerous rhetoric that threatened to elevate the prayer book into an emblem of the failings not only of Charles's government, but of the Union. With the benefit of hindsight, it now seems obvious that Charles should have moved quickly to withdraw the book, consign one or two of the more wildly unpopular bishops to remote parishes, and try to find a dignified way of opening up his government to a wider cross-section of the natural leaders of Scottish society. This is not what happened. As Charles manoeuvred and played for time, dogged in his determination to defeat what he saw as a minority of seditious spirits, his Presbyterian opponents found ever more creative ways of keeping up the pressure without losing control of their volatile support base. The culmination of this activity was the 1638 National Covenant. It comprised an anti-Catholic oath, the 1518 Negative Confession, a carefully selected compendium of Acts of Parliament and General Assembly, and a religious bond in which subjects upheld the authority of the monarch on the condition that he fulfilled his obligation to preserve the true religion, liberties and laws of the kingdom. That the covenant strongly implied a contractual relationship between ruler and ruled was arguably less remarkable than who was permitted to enter into the bond, not simply the great men of Scotland acting in the name of the people, 
but we noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers and commons. The National Covenant was probably signed predominantly by male heads of households. It was publicly sworn all over the country by very many more people, including women, mostly in their parish churches and surrounded by their families, kin, servants and neighbours. Nothing like it can be found prior to this time anywhere in Britain or Europe. As historian John Walter has shown, the swearing, and especially the signing of the National Covenant, would have an important influence on English political practices. In the short term, it made a military showdown between King Charles and the people we can now call the Covenanters highly likely. To stall for time, Charles finally conceded Covenanter demands for a General Assembly, which met at Glasgow in November 1638. Against the instructions of the King's Commissioner, James III, Marquess of Hamilton, the Assembly proceeded to depose the bishops and abolish the office itself. We're going to think now about how and with what consequences the Scottish crisis affected English politics. England was pulled into the Scottish crisis by Charles' decision to use the resources of his other kingdoms to quell the Covenanters by force. These campaigns are known, somewhat grandiosely, as the Bishops' Wars. In January 1639, the king sent individual letters to all his English nobles, summoning them to rendezvous at York, equipped for battle. This was the first time an English king had gone to war without calling a parliament since 1323. Against an older historiography, emphasising the opposition of Puritan peers, such as William Fiennes, first Viscount C and Seal, and Robert Greville, second Lord Brooke, Richard Cust has argued that the bulk of the English peerage expressed themselves duty-bound, in the words of Edward Lord Montague, to venture my life than deny to serve his majesty. Meanwhile, the Covenanters were busy training up men in readiness for the coming invasion and eradicating remaining royalist resistance. Their prospects were greatly improved by the return to Scotland of soldiers who had gained experience of the latest military tactics fighting in the Thirty Years' Wars. When the King's army confronted the Covenanters at Dunn's Law and the borders, neither side was inclined to fight. But entering into negotiations looked better for the Covenanters than it did for a king who had marched all the way to Scotland with the expectation of crushing people he had called rebels. Charles was, once again, playing for time, so he could plan a second expedition. In order to raise supply and shore up support, the King's War Council, led by Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford, persuaded him to call Parliament. Charles's expectation was that Parliament would respond to an emergency situation by immediately granting him supply. Although the House of Lords agreed to this proposal, the House of Commons refused to be distracted from considering the grievances of the King's subjects. What became known as the Short Parliament was dissolved on 5th of May, after sitting for only three weeks. But preparations for war went ahead regardless. The outcome was truly disastrous for King Charles. Rather than wait for the King's army to invade Scotland, the Covenanter leadership decided to take the initiative and strike over the border. Royalist forces under Edward, 2nd Lord Conway, failed to repel the Covenanter army when they reached the Tyne at Newburn on 28th of August. Astonishingly, Conway then withdrew his garrison from Newcastle, thereby allowing the Covenanters to take the city without a fight. A Scottish army now occupied the northeast of England. Oppositionist figures in England, who came to be known as the Junto, seized the opportunity to demand a parliament to settle the people's grievances. In response, Charles opted to summon a council of peers, which convened in York. 
Assessments of the significance of the Council differ markedly. John Adamson contends that the Council's willingness to enter into treaty with the Scots, on condition Charles summoned Parliament, represented a capitulation that gravely undermined the King's authority. Peter Donald and Richard Cust, by contrast, suggest that the Council was important for giving the King a means to strengthen the loyalty and unity of the peerage in advance of a Parliament that was now almost impossible to avoid. The Long Parliament duly convened for the King's opening speech on 3rd of November 1640. It should be evident from the foregoing that Scottish Covenanters were instrumental in bringing the Long Parliament into existence. The Covenantal leadership made a summons of Parliament a condition of entering negotiations with the King's commissioners and insisted that it was party to the final peace settlement. Yet the Covenanters could not possibly have achieved this outcome had they lacked the active support of powerful people in England. The work of Peter Donald and John Adamson has shown the extent of the personal contacts between Scottish Covenanters and English Puritans, contacts that were treasonable in the context of the King's military campaigns against the Covenanters. These relationships were reinforced when the Scottish Commissioners for Peace took up residence in London the same week as the Long Parliament convened. The King's decision to wage war against the Covenanters also provoked them into mounting a highly effective propaganda campaign to influence English public opinion. Scottish Presbyterians, after years of organising against royal policy, were well established in international networks that enabled the smuggling of controversial material, produced on presses in Amsterdam and Leiden, into both England and Scotland. David Como has shown that London radicals risked arrest and punishment to put out pro-Covenanter pamphlets from their secret presses. Once the Covenanter leadership was in de facto control of Scotland and therefore had access to indigenous presses, the printing of material to send into England became easier and quicker. Pamphlets such as An Information to All Good Christians Within the Kingdom of England, printed on an Edinburgh press in February 1640, were designed to appeal to disaffected English readers in terms they would have understood. The popishly affected do thereupon presume to whisper unto his sacred majesty and spread abroad in the neighbour kingdom of England most untrue and damnable aspersions. By and the tour the particulars laid to our charge in the proclamation 18th of December, which are largely answered in our protestation already published, venting with equal impudence and malice that we do only pretend religion, but do intend to shake off the most lawful yoke of authority by changing the form of civil government to invade our neighbour kingdom of England and enrich ourselves by the spoils thereof. Although our conscience bear us testimony against these untruths and make us think charitably that no men understanding rightly religion and policy will grant belief unto these aspersions, forged against the body of a church and kingdom, yet being certainly informed that the authors of our novations and the arch-enemies of reformation have laboured to poison His Majesty's sacred ears with those imputations, and disperse the same with open mouth among the subjects of England, we were forced to vindicate our innocency. As Noah Millstone's work suggests, this kind of rhetoric chimed with the idea, familiar to readers of subversive English pamphlet material, of a putative popish plot at the heart of government to overthrow the Protestant religion. Covenanter publications neither created dissent in England nor incited the English in any direct sense to undertake rebellion. They were important for offering seemingly clear evidence of the immediacy and reality of the popish plot, which seemed the best explanation to many for why Protestant England, 
was now going to war against a Protestant sister nation, while the armies of Catholic princes ravaged their co-religionists on the continent. This material provided a rallying point for people already disillusioned with Charles's government. So now we can move on and think about evaluating the significance of the Scottish crisis and how it brought about the English Civil War. The Scottish crisis was once seen as critical to explanations of why civil war broke out in England. It offered revisionist historians, most notably Conrad Russell, the answer to what they saw as a paradox. Russell's own exploration of the archive suggested to him that England in the 1630s was essentially stable and well-governed. There were divisions and discontents, especially over religion, but Russell saw the people willing to put their heads above the parapet as very few in number and lacking political influence. So how had civil war come about? It was only in the dramatically altered circumstances of the bishops' wars that the extreme weight placed on governing structures unfitted for conflict, combined with Charles's political ineptitude, enabled these divisions and discontents to become manifest. Russell also saw the Scottish Covenanters as the drivers and agenda for religious reform that, being more radical than most English parliamentarians really wanted, further polarised opinion and swept away the ground on which a compromise with moderate royalists could have been found. Fueling this already explosive situation were developments in Ireland, which require their own programme and will be touched on only in brief here. Of all Charles's realms, Ireland was the most ethnically and religiously diverse and divided. Although the vast majority of the population were Gaelic-speaking Irish in ethnicity and Catholic in religion, Ireland's government was controlled by a minority of English Protestants, the New English. The Old English, whose ancestors had seized Irish land in the 13th century, had since largely integrated with Irish landed society. Significantly, many Old English families remained adherents of the Catholic faith. Complicating matters further was the presence in Ulster of Protestant colonisers from both Scotland and England, who had been granted lands confiscated from Irish Catholics in the later 16th century. In October 1641, a group of Irish Catholics staged a coup to seize Dublin Castle, the seat of Protestant government in Ireland, from which position of strength they intended to negotiate for concessions on religious worship and security of land tenure. Notable here was the example afforded to Ireland's rebels by the success of the Scottish Covenanters, and, like the Covenanters, they asserted their loyalty to the Crown. Irish and Old English Catholics alike also felt deeply threatened by the fact that closer relations between English and Scottish Protestants were being cemented through renewed calls for further reformation in Ireland. Although the Dublin coup failed, the rebellion spread to Ulster and the South. The brutal reaction of the government's military commanders sparked panic amongst the Catholic population, and the rebellion quickly began to run out of control. Wildly exaggerated reports of atrocities committed by Catholics against their Protestant neighbours were proclaimed by English and Scottish politicians as proof of the reality of the Popish plot to overthrow Protestant government. A military solution was urgently required. But if the king exercised his right to raise an army to defend his Protestant subjects in Ireland, might he not then turn it against his enemies in England and Scotland? Should Parliament therefore take charge of the military. Charles could not permit Parliament to challenge his prerogatives in this way. Thus, it was Ireland that set the stage for the final showdown between the King and his English Parliament. The English Civil War, according to Conrad Russell, was the product of the structural breakdown of the British multiple monarchy. 
Crisis occurred first in the peripheral, marginalised kingdom of Scotland. Charles, understandably but ill-advisedly, decided to use his resources as King of England to crush a rebellion in his other realm. The success of the Scottish Covenanters, simultaneously an inspiration and a terror to the King's Catholic subjects in Ireland, instigated a rebellion there that further inflamed English politics. Events in Scotland and Ireland placed such an intolerable strain on England's governing structures that it experienced a functional breakdown, and civil war was the consequence. This elegant thesis for explaining the outbreak of the English Civil War has been heavily critiqued in recent decades. There is no doubt that both Scottish Covenanters and Irish Catholics played a crucial role in the destabilisation of British monarchic government. However, Anne Hughes has rightly cautioned against exaggerating the role of Scotland and Ireland as direct causes of England's descent into civil war. The British context, she writes, is crucial to the timing of the breakdown in England, but does not fully explain the nature of the conflict that emerged. Profound religious and political divisions were tearing at England's social fabric well before the Scots started throwing stools at their bishops. Enough people were angry enough with Charles's regime by the late 1630s that some sort of explosion had become questions, not of if and maybe, but of when and how. The Scots and Irish merely created opportunities for Charles's opponents in England to risk action. This interpretation is convincing. Nonetheless, the fact that Scottish Covenanters and English Puritans allied with one another in pursuit of a broadly, albeit not entirely compatible, vision of their religious and constitutional futures requires deeper research. We do not need to contend that either the Scots or the Irish caused the English Civil War to recognise the crucial importance of these cross-border connections to any full understanding of the nature of the conflict that emerged. If you enjoyed this programme, you can now listen to the second part of this series, in which Professor Stewart discusses the causes and consequences of Scottish intervention on the side of Parliament in the First Civil War. To access this programme, go to our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk. Here you will also find other talks and interviews with leading historians and other experts discussing the causes, conflicts and consequences of the wars across the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. Our podcasts can also be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And to ensure you don't miss any of our new programmes, register now for our weekly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, on our website or using the link in the show notes.